0: Before we begin the program, just a heads up that today's show is a rebroadcast from last year's Earth Day special. It originally aired on April 22nd, 2022, so any mention of dates or times are likely now outdated.
1: six above sea level I grab the mic because I like to take you to
2: another mental level no power frequency radio modulation the big sound from underground
1: another no change without struggle no one in power ain't giving up nothing no change without struggle no one in power
2: W.O.R.T. 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am Esti Dinor. Happy Earth Day. <coughs> sorry about my voice and uh, sorry about coughing into your ear. I, of course, think that Earth Day should be celebrated and uh, practiced every day, but um, today is the official day, and uh, we have a two-part show for you. In the second part, we will talk with Jenny Price about her brand-new book, Stop Saving the Planet, an Environmentalist Manifesto. And we are starting with Kata... Apologies, it's one of these days. With uh, Kata Bailin, she is a professor at the Department of Spanish and Portuguese and a faculty director of LASIS at the University of Wisconsin here in Madison. Her current book and film projects are focused on a revival of the Maya culture in Yucatan, Mexico, that is inspired by the Maya relations with sacred species and ecosystems, maize, melipona bees, and cenotes, and we will be talking about all of these things. She has been selected as Fulbright Scholar to continue her research in Yucatan, Mexico in 20. Among her recent books are Ethics of Life, Contemporary Hispanic Debates, and In Search of Alternative Biopolitics in Contemporary Spain, Anti-Bullfighting, Animality, and the Environment. She has also directed and produced a documentary film titled Maya Land, Listening to the Bees, which is uh, why we asked her to join us today. Hello, Kata, thank you so much. for joining us.
0: Hello, Esti. Hello, everyone. I'm very happy to be here, and uh, thank you for inviting me.
2: Yeah, and thank you for um, the film. Can you um, start by explaining to our listeners what the film is about?
0: So the film is about a struggle to save the nature and culture in this beautiful part of the world, which is uh, Yucatan, um, Mayan Yucatan. And it all started, uh, as in many other places, uh, with the death of bees. See, but something very special in that area is that most of the beekeepers are of Mayan origin. So uh, they started to look around and trying to figure out why their bees were dying. And then in 2011, uh, the honey export to Europe, was rejected by European authorities due to contamination with GE pollen. Mayan beekeepers didn't know what was GE pollen, but then they realized that during the first years of the 21st century, they became surrounded by the plantations of genetically engineered soy. And this is a technology which is invisible. You know, nobody would really suspect that any problems um, or that so many problems would be caused by it. But as, it, uh, as Mayan beekeepers themselves researched, that was connected to first deforestation because it needs of uh, big surfaces of land to be planted with a profit. Um, deforestation, of course, threatened number of species. Uh, among them, sacred Malipona bees that Mayans uh, have kept for thousands of years. It also contaminated the water putting uh, in hazard health of various animal species, insects, but also humans, rates of cancer started to grow in Yucatan. And obviously, uh, also threatened Mayan culture based on different kinds of agriculture, which is called Milpa, and which is based on polyculture. So they organized different Mayan groups connected, they were supported by activists from different parts of the world. And for various years, they campaigned against uh, genetically engineered soy. Uh, as a result of their struggle, Sagarpa, um, Mexican institution that gave permits for planting this soy, revoked those permits. And perhaps, thanks to in part to this resistance, uh, Mexican government, current Mexican government, is uh, announced that. Uh, starting in 2024, there will be no genetically engineered crops in Mexico in general.
2: Mm-hmm. That's um, really good news, and it's it's interesting to me the way you describe the film and and the situation. Is you started by saying that this is about the fight to uh, save the culture of the Maya people, and from there. We went to bees and agriculture and, um, and GMOs and um, uh, cancer and so on and so forth. And, and it um, it occurs to me, again, looking at that whole um, that wholeness um, that. And I think we'll talk about it more again in the second part that um, it's all one, right? That um, the culture is not just culture. The culture has to do with what they eat and how they deal with the world and with tending to bees. And um, and if all of these can't happen, horrible things happen, right? So, um, can you talk about that and and the the way the Maya understand the world, which I think is quite different. I I, I, I think the Maya probably would think it's weird to have one Earth day a a year, right? <laughs>
0: Well, yes, I, I think that the film starts with uh, with a narration of one of the Mayan intellectuals and poets who says, you know, for us, uh, there is no subjects and objects like for you people. For us, everything is a subject, animals, plants, even stones. Uh, so we are not thinking about protecting and maybe my uh, uh, colleague here, uh, Jenny's book title, Dialogues with this idea, we don't want to be protecting nature, we want to coexist with nature. Um, And uh, obviously, that kind of epistemology leads to a culture which is not separated from nature. It's uh, one uh, world and everything, as you mentioned, everything is connected. And in fact, nature could be considered the most important part of the Mayan culture and of various other indigenous cultures. Uh, there is a moment in the film when uh, Bernardo Camal, uh, one of my one of the heroes of for me of of all these struggles, and also one of the main protagonists of my forthcoming book who says, you know, Milpa, our agriculture, is not just growing crops. This is a social structure, family structure. It regulates relationships between people. It regulates our spirituality. Uh, This is our world. And it even could be thought that because of Milpa, we started to fight our largest and longest rebellion, which was the war of castes. in in the 19th century.
2: Which is something I actually have not heard about uh, until I watched the movie. But let's first uh, talk about Milpa. Uh, What is it?
0: So Milpa is very beautiful. When I first saw it in the middle of the forest you walk through a little path uh, through the jungle and then the jungle opens and you see very, very black soil little pieces of trees which were burnt for milpa, and then patches of green and yellow where maize and squash and beans all grow together in little, little patches. So there is there is a color, there is a, a noise of the forest all around. There is very particular smell, mixture of the flowers and and that uh, smell of the ashes of the burned ground, um, it's its a very, very, very special place. But, but what happens there is that for four or five years, this burned out area in the forest serves to grow crops. For the next five or six years, there are bushes growing there, providing other kind of other kinds of fruits and, and medicinal plants for Mayan people. And then forest takes over. And all these repeats in cycles of 34, 35, 36 years, which means that what does it mean for the culture is that planning takes time of one or two generations. And all this planning needs to be done together between parents, children grandparents. So so this provides, this builds, this constructs a completely different structure of time for Mayan culture, from which, you know, I am learning hope and peace and uh, sort of regeneration.
2: Mm-hmm. And uh, it also means, from the way you describe it, that... Um, crops for human consumption and the forest which also have crops for human consumption um, live together and and do not disturb each other and there are um, scenes in the film that show the soy uh, fields, which demand deforestation, you have to cut the forest to grow these straight lines of uh, GMO, chemicalized, sprayed
0: um, soy. Right. So, something that um, you know, I we wanted to show in the film is that this is not only about. Uh, the, the conflict that is happening or was happening is still it's still there because soy even if forbidden is planted illegally still it's not about resources it's about an ecosystem very very complex ecosystem where number of species which for mayans are subjects kind of coexisting with them have evolved for thousands of years without losing equilibrium and allowing to leave multiple forms of life which are now being threatened and are beginning to die, right? So so this framework, I think throws a completely different life light at at the uh, at the conflict. and and one one other thing that came to my mind when you were you were talking is that you know I when this is not in the film, it's probably going to be in the book. Uh, but among Mayan intellectuals, there is this theory that in the 8th century, when Mayas have abandoned their big, big cities, for a long time, it was a mystery for archaeologists. Why did it happen? Why the culture suddenly started to collapse? So according to my Mayan intellectuals I talked to, this was because of monocrops. Mayan people had grown too much maize huh. and they... Run out of resources. So then drought came, and they start the culture started to collapse. So then the, the, those who survived the huge crisis of wars, violence, drought, hunger, they decided we're going to live in a different way, we're going to live in small groups, and in symbiosis with the forest. So this is what they've learned from their history, that this kind of life is good and monocrops are a threat
2: huh so you talked uh, just a little earlier about hope um, do you think that the rest of us um, are able to learn that same lesson from from the terrible way that, uh, that we practice agriculture nowadays
0: so you know I, I'm thinking about that a lot actually I'm thinking because my students I'm teaching this uh, issues in my classes and my students are asking me, you know, so what kind of lessons are you drawing from all that for, for for us, for yourself? And I'm hoping that right now nature, the problem of environmental crisis, the problem of species in extinction, as it happened in the story in Yucatan with meliponas, which were announced by scientists in, th- in threat of extinction, that this brings us closer to the indigenous framework of the world we are um we are beginning to revise and rethink our attitude towards so-called resources so-called um prime prime materials right so-called animals we are uh, we are realizing that there is a need of, of a new, conceptual framework that could lead to transformations in economic, thought and policies.
2: Yeah, um, I, I I don't want to be a um, a killjoy, but I think just yesterday or maybe the day before, I heard some uh, high, UN um, guy. I'm talking about how the war in Ukraine is affecting the entire world because, of course, Ukraine is where a lot of uh, crops are grown that go all over. Um, And he says, so what we need now is more energy, more fertilizers, and more pesticides so that people can grow crops where they are. And that made me very unhopeful there. (laughs) I don't know. Do you want to comment on that?
0: Well... You know, I think that uh, this is still the hegemonic discourse, right? That uh, that uh, we absolutely need uh, genetically engineered crops. We need uh, more pesticides in order to be able to produce the food for the world. And um, there is also an emerging discourse considering the possibility that agroecology, in connection with well chosen cutting-edge technologies could, in fact, uh, be compatible uh, comparable in terms of the amount of production of food. And one more thing there that um, Vandana Shiva always brings is that, you know, the amount of food produced does not mean yet uh, nutrition, sufficient nutrition, because nutrition is also measured in... Uh, in the richness of all the micronutrients, which are in agroecological uh, um, production, but not in the monocrops genetically engineered and very, very heavily uh, touched by pesticides. So so these are discussions that I'm aware of. I don't do research um, in in a lab or uh, even did not follow sufficient amount of um, literature about that. But I do know that things are changing very slowly, perhaps too slowly, but they are changing.
2: Yeah. Well, as a gardener myself, I and of course, totally organic and everything. I I can testify that um, the amount of food as well as beauty flowers, um, which, again, I grow for, you know, for the beauty, but also for the bees and and the other um, fertilizers. Um, is, I mean, I get huge amounts of food for a very little piece of land, and um, and and I think that is because it's not sprayed and it's not GMO, and, um, well, it's tended with love and with intention. But um, let's go back. We don't have a whole lot of time left, so... Um, at least two things when I want to get to. Um, one is um, someone there talks about in the film, talks about the way to uh, care for the collective. And as if I remember correctly, they, they're talking about the collective that is the Melipona bees and also the collective that is the Maya people who actually organized in a whole bunch of collectives. So if you want to talk about that concept and and um, how it's working
0: right so going back to that conceptual framework in which uh, there are no subjects and objects but everybody is subject you know in this in if you if you think about all the species in the world as a conglomeration of subjects which learn from each other, we have to notice that non-humans have been, uh, here longer and uh, in fact humans have all their history they have learned from some non-humans mayan people have learned from melipona bees the one of the melipona bees have become their god it's called uh, he's called ahmus and kab uh, and the the pyramids uh, imitated apparently the structure of the um, Combs that Meliponas are building inside of wood logs and even their uh, writing have appeared because of keeping Meliponas. Obviously, they learned from Meliponabis uh, medicinal properties of many plants and also the community life. Um, so, one of the ideas, most important ideas for my film and my book and the article that I published with. Sainas Suryanarainen about that, is that precisely this relationship with Meliponas that Mayans people have maintained, helped them to to fight the struggle and win the struggle against genetically engineered soy, Hmm. because um, international community was very uh, uh, alarmed by the fact that those sacred bees would become extinct, and uh, Mayan people received a lot of support from international uh, organizations, from politicians, from uh, lawyers, uh, so that uh, the, the struggle was much more efficient.
2: Hmm, And I also would like um, to ask you to tell us um, a little bit about the caste war. Um, I thought I was quite well informed of uh, the history of, of Mexico, but I've never um, heard of that. And again, it's also interesting in the context of what we're talking about. So again, war doesn't usually just happen. There's uh, reasons, and, and the reasons in this case are... Um, are related to what we're talking about.
0: Yes, yes. so, so th- th- another interesting thing you know about time in, in indigenous time very often things repeat like in on a spiral or in a circle. I, I already told you that May- Mayan people believe that they or their civilization in the 8th century collapsed because of the monocrops. So the war of caste also happened because of monocrops according to many historians that was the time where, uh, when the colonizers were planting a lot of henequen, a lot of sugar, a lot of other uh, monocrop uh, plantations, which were pushing Mayan people and uh, cutting their forests and pushing Mayan people and taking away the land from Milpa. That's why Bernardo Kamal said, well, Milpa made us fight the war of caste because because these plantations were taking the land away from Milpa. And this war, it was an amazing war, it lasted more than 50 years, and there was a moment when Mayan people almost won, in, in the sense of being able to separate themselves from Mexico. Um, they were uh, given a help, support by England that was uh, providing arms for the rebels certain moment Mexican government said to England well you know we are going to give you a chunk of that land uh, in return for uh, you stop stopping the help for the rebels and that is the origin of Belize Belize was actually given by the Mexican government to England in that moment and then without any arms and support Mayan rebellion collapsed
2: Hmm. Ah, interesting.
0: But if I can add one more interesting thing, you haven't heard about it because this is not taught. It's not even taught in uh, Mexican Yucatan. And actually this whole struggle about revitalization of Mayan culture brought that issue to the surface as well. So the teachers who joined it uh, demand right now that the story of the war of castes be taught in Mayan schools.
2: (laughs) Yeah, um, well, the film um, really reveals a lot of interesting things. It's it's a very interesting film, but it's also very beautiful, and uh, it's really interesting to see the way the Melitpona bees. Um, I mean, they do build these kind of pyramids, and um, um, yeah, it's 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 very interesting to watch it, and it's also very. Um, very well done, but also beautiful. You know, there are, um, as you know, there are um, parts of it that are just really beautiful. Um, there's also discussion there, which, um, I don't know, if you if you can talk for a minute about um, the Mennonites or maybe we'll have to keep it for another time. Uh,
0: so... One thing that I should say uh, is that this film is co-directed by Avi Weinstein. I'm not sure if Avi is there listening to us, but the the beautiful uh, putting together of all the footage uh, is, should be attributed to his amazing skills. So thank you, Avi, if you are there. And also there are a number of other collaborators who uh, helped me gather the footage, Reynaldo Morales, Marcos Colon, and then um, one of my collaborators, uh, most important collaborators in terms of thinking about this problem was Sainas Suryanarainen, uh, who is right now the director of Holt Center for Science and Technology Studies. So I couldn't do anything without them and without a number of collaborators also in Mexico. Sounds Menonite wonderful. It's a long story. Yeah, right? we'll
2: talk about it another story. time. Um, I've been reading about that and that is also very interesting. Um, we'll we'll find another opportunity. Thank you so much, Kata uh, Bailin, professor at the Department of Spanish and Portuguese, faculty director of LASIS right here at UW-Madison. And as she said, you can get in touch with her and she will give you the password so you can uh, watch the movie too. Appreciate you joining us today.
0: Thanks. Thank you so much, Esti. It was such a pleasure and honor and privilege to be able to share my work with uh, your listeners. I am a great fan of WRT.
2: Great. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.
0: As a reminder, this is a rebroadcast of last year's Earth Day show. It originally aired on April 22nd, 2022, and we are not taking calls during the hour, but if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can direct them to talk at wortfm.org.
2: And um, we are going to go straight to Jenny Price, the author of Stop Saving the Planet, an Environmentalist Manifesto. She's a public writer, artist and historian who works passionately on environmental justice and is a research fellow at the Sam Fox School of Design and Visual Arts at Washington University in St. Louis. Hello, uh, Johnny. Thank you for joining us.
1: Hello, Esti. Thanks for having me.
2: So you've been listening to this conversation. Anything you want to say before we start talking about your book?
1: Uh, I think that my book is is very much in line, especially I loved when Kata said, uh, we don't want to protect nature, we want to exist in nature. And and my book is, is a lot about how environmentalism Uh, Doesn't really think that way or hasn't
2: traditionally. Yeah. Yeah. So so explain stop saving the planet. Come on (laughs) What do you mean?
1: (laughs) I'm begging you please stop saving the planet. So um, basically the book starts with a conundrum It starts with a question and it's really why do we have this frenzy of trying to save the planet? Which gets um, which is exploding more and more every year everybody wants to save the planet And yet most of our environmental crises are getting worse, existentially worse, right? Climate change, plastics, air pollution in many cases, groundwater pollution, et cetera, et cetera, species extinction, just to start out by being a bummer. And I basically say that, well, there's a lot of reasons, but um, that we're basically thinking about the problem all wrong right, that environmentalists have been really good, American environmentalists, since the first Earth Day in 1970, have been really good about talking about how to save the environment as a place out there. And actually really quite bad at talk- talking about and assisting how our lives are foundationally environmental. So if you, everybody looks around you, uh, everything you see, you know, from your clothes to your devices, to your walls, it's all made out of environment. We change environments to live. That's like the definition of living on Earth. We change environments to live. And if you're really freaking out about climate change, what I argue is that the most important question you can possibly ask isn't how to save the environment or the planet, which we use as a synonym for the environment. It's how can we change environments better? How do we change environments to live and how can we do that better? And I basically say, well, and that's two questions, how do we change our environments to create our stuff, you know, the shirts and the devices and the walls and all that, but also how do we create uh, change environments to create our wealth? And so basically, very simply, I say the cause of climate change and these other environmental crises is actually that we change environments incredibly badly to create our stuff and wealth. I could explain that a little bit. And... um, and, you know, why are these problems getting worse? Again, there are a lot of reasons, but I think one is that most of our solutions, whether it's you, you know, or um, or me or Exxon or the EPA, are not actually challenging um, our industrial and economic practices.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, um, let me, so you're challenging the entire environmental movement, at least the American one. I want to challenge you. Um, So we talk here um, often with um, indigenous peoples from various parts of the world. And uh, one thing that I've heard more than once is that we are the environment, we are part of the environment, we are just another species that uh, makes the environment and um, that maybe that's the uh, most basic problem that we don't think of ourselves as such and we don't understand that uh, what we do to the environment we're doing to ourselves. What What do you think?
1: Uh, I couldn't agree more. I think that's basically what you just said is really the heart of my book. Um, we are environment and it's really trying to think about something like climate change is about trying to think about how we live inside environments and with environments and by changing environments. And so what I say, most of the book is actually focused on the logic that flows from thinking about the environment as something that, out there that we have to save. And I say there's two been two environmentalist instincts and these these will sound very familiar. I call them credos, and one is green virtue, and one is what I call whole planitude. So if you think about it very quickly, green virtue is this, like, we all know this greener than boundness, this incredible, you know, virtue that historically we've attached to saving the environment from all humanity, you know, from sort of a corrupt humanity. That has a long history that I won't get into, but it's basically you're awesome when you save the planet. And then whole planitude is this idea that because the envir- when you think of the environment as something out there, then anything you do accomplishes the goal of saving that thing that we call the environment, right? So anything that you do will save the planet. It will all add up. How many times have you heard that? So what I say is if you add green virtue and whole planet to, right, um, you're awesome when you save the planet and you can do anything to save the planet, it'll all add up. What do you get? You get, you're awesome when you do anything to save the planet. And I think basically, that's the environmentalist mantra. and it has been for 50 years. You're awesome 50 years, yeah, 50 years. you're, you're awesome when you do anything to save the planet. And I think that really it, that you cannot understand what environmentalists do and why they do it and why they do it so passionately unless you understand this logic of you're awesome when you do anything to save the planet, which which you can track right through all kinds of solutions, whether it's recycling, or lead building, or Priuses, or Teslas, or uh, carbon offsets in trading, um, none of which are going to actually solve our problems.
2: Yeah, so um, I keep getting these uh, emails practically daily, save the this, save the that. and, and I just, I delete them immediately because it's not about saving anything. It's about them wanting me to give them money. And um, the money I realized um, goes first to the high salaries of the CEOs of these organizations, which again, uh, I think that people... In um, people who can do things that matter should be paid well, but I don't know that anyone should be paid 180, 200,000 a year um, to be the CEO of an, an environmental organization or any other social change or any any really any organi- organization or corporation for that matter. Um, so they can spend more money on buying things, which is part of the problem, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I go through... So the book has 11 reasons to stop saving the planet and 39 ways that you personally can stop saving the planet. But um, the 11 reasons, one of them is, is green consumerism. You know, green consumerism is basically just using the problem to solve the problem, right? It's using an economy that's explicitly designed to... Um, you know, to maximize profits instead of our health and well-being to basically um, try to solve the problems that that economy inevitably creates. So, you know, replacing a jillion cars with a jillion cars is not going to solve anything. And Americans are absolutely obsessed with cars. Um, likewise, you know, carbon offsets and trading, it's a, it's a strategy that's very intentionally designed to not challenge an economy that's based on growth and profits and to, that's supposed to maximize growth and profits. And you will never, ever, ever in a million years solve climate change with um, the economy that is actually causing the problem. So, but just to get back more specifically to what you're saying, yeah, I think that what we have is what I call this this sort of just do anything, you're awesome, when you save the planet, it'll all add up, even though it's never added up, it's not adding up, it's never going to add up, allows for what I call an environmentalism of good intentions and environmentalism of bad intentions. So the environmentalists of good intentions, we have this frenzy of you know Tesla buying and green consumerism and green Friday and um, you know carbon pricing and carbon offsets and lead building, none of which is actually challenging um, how our economy works. And then you have, but it's allowing mostly, basically what it does is, I'm not the only person saying this, but basically what it does is it allows affluent people who benefit most from our economy to feel like they're doing something, right? Um, Even, but without having to really challenge the economy that they benefit most. Oh,
2: themselves, yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, And then stashing all the pollution in the sacrifice zones, right? Um, Another three of my um, reasons to stop saving the planet are actually because everyone hates environmentalists. And that has to do with how people in the sacrifice zones feel about all these fake pretend solutions. Um, But so you have this frenzy of, of good intentions. But then you also have this frenzy of bad intentions because this, this, um, this logic—just do anything to save the planet—and you're awesome. It'll all add up. If you think about it, that's what makes greenwashing work, right? Because Exxon can just do anything. They can sponsor an Earth Day. They can, um, they can, you know, buy a little bit of wind and solar energy, which they actually use to power their fossil fuel operations. And everybody goes, "Oh, look, at least they're doing something." It all adds up. And so, what I say is that. It's not like environmental crises are all environmentalists' fault, but we've made it so easy to do something that accomplishes nothing. So you have a lot of people with good intentions who are doing this frenzy of doing something that accomplishes nothing. We're all turning off our lights and we're recycling and we're we're doing all this stuff that that, that is never going to solve the problem. And it's just a distraction. But then you, it, we make it so easy for Exxon and Walmart and Nestle and all, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank of America to do these things that accomplish nothing, absolutely nothing, except take us backwards because we pretend that they're accomplishing something. So I really think that it's hard to understand why greenwashing works unless you understand this kind of save the planet logic.
2: Yeah. Um, I'm thinking. How about um, do you want to discuss um, Southeast Los Angeles? You uh, write about it in two parts of the book, and um, I think I think you're giving a very good picture of um, of how the planet is not being saved and how people are being sacrificed. Um, and how really nothing much has changed. So, do do you want to go over that a bit?
1: Yeah, so basically, the, the book starts with two questions. And one is, why are all the environmental crises getting worse, even though we're doing more and more to try to tackle them? But the other is, why does everyone hate environmentalists, which is obviously an exaggeration, but there is this actually quite visceral hatred of environmentalists. And so I say, well, Let's think about, and that's really two groups, right? It's communities of color, which actually um, predominantly take it in the neck, which which dominate the sacrifice zones, low-income communities of color. But it's also a lot of low-income white communities that are sort of the ultra-white wing uh, base. So I say, well, okay, let's take the first community. Let's say you live in southeast Los Angeles, which is one of the most, you know, devastated sacrifice zones in the country. It's right near the Los Angeles port. It's full of freeways. It's full of industry. I could go on and on so um, you benefit least from this economy in which we change environments badly you um you contribute least to the problems and you are um you're you're basically suffering the worst consequences right because your communities are where we're, we're dumping all of the pollution from how our economy works and you're being told that the way to solve these problems the way to that we have to save the planet from humanity right it doesn't really matter where doesn't really matter who right it doesn't really matter how much but we have to save the planet from humanity from all humanity and the way you're going to do that is to buy a tesla you know or to buy uh five energy star tvs and put one in each room right and then the corporations that are creating all these problems in your communities are cavelling and getting, you know, being applauded for putting solar roofs on their lead platinum headquarters, right? And then the the EPA and public policies at every level are just subsidizing all of this. We're creating carpool lanes for Teslas, you know, and we're we're subsidizing um, oil companies to buy clean energy, et cetera. And I think that you could see how this would just be. Infuriating if you live in one of these communities. So I think basically what's happening is this, you know, just do anything you're, uh, to save the planet, You're awesome. It'll all add up approach. What it does is it's created this accumulating alienation in the sacrifice zones because these are people who live in the places where these solutions might be their trickle down solutions. It might be like making Beverly Hills a bit cleaner, but they're not making South East LA any better. Um, Almost, you know, everyone in Southeast LA has asthma, right? And the solutions are just ridiculous. Obviously, it's just silly, ridiculous, elitist nonsense. And so I think you can see how this hatred over the last 50 years has really built up. And I think it's basically at at a boiling point because the solutions are not helping the people who need need the most. And I think that's an important question. Why are the people who are suffering most from environmental crises convinced that environmentalists are uh, not acting in their interests.
2: Well, and one interesting thing is that California, of course, considers itself a very, um, a a, a leader in environmentalism and and climate, or, you know, trying to mitigate climate change. Southeast LA is in California.
1: Yeah, and, you know, I really like to, uh, one strategy I really like to use, is to use sort of the best case scenario to critique. So you take the state that is supposedly has the most cutting edge climate policy and is basically telling you that on social media every day, California, and their climate policy in my view is a disaster. It doesn't challenge how our economy works and in fact, it does exactly the opposite. And what is the the heart of their climate policy? It's a carbon trading program that now the state of Washington has just copied. It's considered to be like a model and it's a disaster. It's been uh, implemented. They launched it in 2013. It's done essentially nothing uh, to reduce emissions in the state uh, that you could really see or feel. And the their internal environmental justice committee said, when they were first designing this climate plan, by no means should you rely on carbon offsets. It will make the, the pollution in low-income communities worse, which is exactly what has happened, actually. The emissions have actually gone up and of carbon, which means the, the emissions of co-pollutants have gone up in low-income communities. And they keep saying in 2017 they doubled down and they um, they renewed the carbon trading program only with more giveaways to the oil companies and to the the highest polluting industries. And again, I've been reading. Uh, I guess it's coming up for renewal again. Again, I've been reading. They're just doubling down, tripling down, and saying, "Oh, well, you know, we just need to get it to work properly." Well, it will never work properly, pro- uh, you know, because it's designed to try to do something that the economy is inherently not designed to do Um, and it will never work. And so I think California is actually a really good, um, is is the best place to critique because it's the place that's doing the most. And it's, you can see just, just what a failure those um, policies have been.
2: Yeah. So you say that um, what we're doing is asking what can I do, which is, um, really a very limited question I mean what can I do as one person and I I do some of the things that you mentioned I drive a vault um, it's at 107 miles to the gallon. has been for a long time. I do brag about that, but I also know that the um, the battery is made up partially of uh, rare earth and all kinds of terrible things that have been mined in places in the third world by possibly children who are dying of cancer at, at a young age. Um, I also know that it'll last for so many years, and then what? It'll have to be um, tossed somewhere. So, you know, and I do uh, recycle, and I I do all of this stuff, but I'm totally aware that, um, you know, this is nothing. It's maybe a drop in the ocean, right? And so you Mm -hmm. say the question is not, the question we should ask is not, what can I do, but what needs to be done, and what needs to be done, Jenny?
1: <laughs> so first of all, I just want to say, affirm how virtuous you are for driving a bolt. That's great. And for recycling, even though I think basically we should all just stop recycling. It's
2: a great card. I love it.
1: <laughs> and the solution. And I do say, you know, there are things you can do, but you need to work for social change and, you, you know, do things together. You need to work for, you know, scale up. You need to work for systemic change. So I have 39 ways that you personally can um stop saving the planet in the back of the book, you can move wealth differently through the world, which is probably the most important thing you can do. But this question, okay, what needs to be done. So I wrote a book about how to think, right? About how we think. And I always get this question, Esty, right? Like, okay, okay, but what should we do? What can what I do? do right? What can I do? I want to do something, right? And I understand that. But um and I used to say, well, you know, I'm not in a college I'm not an economist, I'm not an engineer. But now I really just say, you know what? I don't think that's the most important question. I think this obsession with what can we do what can we do forget about how we think right is actually part of the problem because i think that we know what to do you know we just heard kata talk about what to do you can open the new york times or the newspaper or you know your your social media every single day and see something to do we have the solutions and i think this kind of constant oh but what should we do sort of ignores that actually you know, that's not the most important question. We know how to do regenerative agriculture. We know how to do sustainable forestry. We know how to have worker-owned cooperatives. We know how to create an equitable economy and an equitable tax system. You know, we know how to create clean energy. We know how to do public energy. Um, we have example. We have decades and decades of literature on all these things, and we have examples in this country and all around the world for all of those things. And I really think I've started to insist that the most important question is why aren't we doing it why aren't we doing it i think that's the question that we have to focus on why aren't we doing it and i think that has everything to do first of all with how we think about and define environment and economy and how they're connected and also it has um everything to do with the fact that almost you know 98 percent of the most popular solutions refuse to challenge how our economy works and if you refuse to challenge that the engine of our society is an economy that is not designed to maximize well-being that is in fact designed very intentionally to marginalize social and environmental costs you will get nowhere you will get nowhere so all of biden's policies many of which are very progressive many of which i'm totally on board with i'm actually very pleased with how um environmental he's been at the same time it doesn't. Challenge, it's not a Green New Deal, right? It doesn't challenge how our economy works. And I just don't think we, I just, you know, those of us who've been saying this, I mean, look at Sunrise Movement, look at, you know, Fridays for Future, look at the Indigenous Environmental Network. Um, I think Kata's the folks she made a movie about would, would say the same thing. And we just don't understand. It's like, why are we pretending Why are we pretending? I mean, look at what's happening around us. You know, I have young people I love, you have young people I love. We have to stop pretending that this economy is normal.
2: Yeah, so yeah,
1: I start to rant when I talk about this
2: book. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I mean, the, the whole book is a rant, right? But it's a very, a, a very charmingly, <laughs> it's it's <laughs> very charmingly written, and uh, but it also does make you think, and and um, I would like to recommend that our listeners get the book, Stop, Stop Saving the Planet, an Environmentalist Manifesto. It's inexpensive, it's short, uh, really easy to read, and, um, you know, might um, help um, you change the way you think, which, which, as Jenny says, is, is the first step. And without that step, uh, nothing else is going to happen. But so, in the last few minutes, uh, Jenny... Um, so if we change our thinking, um, where do we go from there? How, how Um, do we change things so that the change is real?
1: I mean, again, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm the cultural historian, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not the person saying, you know, how exactly do you change the economy, but, know again i mean even when i was um my nephew's age we had a much more equitable economy we have a blueprint for a green new deal you know we have um you can go to naomi klein's site beautiful solutions you can go to the sunrise movement site you can go to the new economy coalition site the story of stuff website um climate justice alliance you know and they are full of all the steps that we need to take in order to and all lots and lots of models of of people and um and, um and organizations that are doing these things already you can go to uh, Bill McKibben I think has been a, a strong voice you can um you know there's there's so many people out there who are working um for this and it's not so I mean I think honestly I say if there's if if people say if there you know if there's one single thing you can only do one single thing to um, tackle say the climate crisis it's to insist that an economy that impoverishes most of the people who participate in it, For the benefit of a few and that is environmentally devastating to the point of ecosystem collapse is not normal you know one of the 39 ways to stop to save the planet is redefine extremist it's not normal it's extreme it's insane it's crazy it's radical and an economy that would actually allow most of the people who participate in it to have the resources that we need to thrive It's not crazy or radical it's just normal it's just decent i mean one of the things i i do is i don't use the word capitalism in the book because i think it's hard to have a reasonable conversation with the words capitalism and socialism yeah Um, i think we you know completely um have a different uh, conversation about how our economy works
2: yeah well it it um occurs to me that really we're ending the conversation today the way we started it it's all one thing right um the environment uh, social justice um no war um all these things are, are one thing really um it's one system that needs to be changed from the very core um We're out of time. (laughs) Jenny uh, Price, um, author of Stop Saving the Planet, an environmental manifesto, public writer, artist, historian, works passionately on environmental justice, and is a research fellow at the Sam Fox School of Design and Visual Arts at Washington University, St. Louis. Thank you so much, uh, Jenny, for the book and, and for joining us today.
1: And thank you so much, Estee. This is a wonderful conversation.
2: Thank you. Appreciate you joining us and thanks to Richelle and to Summer. I'm Estee Dinor. We'll be talking again next week. Bye bye.